You can be certain of this, that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, loves his bride, the church. And I would uh, have to say that I believe we are the most prayed for church in all the world today in one place. And we thank him for that. With a backdrop this morning of incredible human sacrifice, this Remembrance Day service, and by far a backdrop of even greater sacrifice, the Lord's table that reminds us of the sacrifice that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, made. It is rather shocking, I think, for us, or should be, that when we encounter a common human statement that is made like this, what's the bare minimum that we can do to be okay with God. But that's an all too common, if not voiced phrase, an all too common attitude of the heart. What's the, what's the bare minimum? What's the very least that I can do and, and get away with and still be right with God? Today, in fact, we're going to encounter that in our text in Zechariah 7. That's kind of the one that leaps out as a question that leaps out at us that is given from uh, the people of that day as they expressed it to the Lord. It's kind of like um, if your, your parents were ill or your mom or dad were ill or something and you said to them, look, it, um, it seems to me that you're getting better, so would it be okay if I don't visit you anymore or pray for you anymore because I got, I got other things to do. I've got other priorities in my life. But that's basically what we've got happening here in Zechariah 7. They gather in front of the priests and they say, look, we've been fasting for the fifth month of the year for, well, about 69 years now, and we notice that the temple is just about complete, or maybe it is complete, and and we're thinking that maybe we could back off of our fasting, our our ceremonial gathering with the Lord, and, and just get on with other things that we'd like to do in life. Now, collectively, we, we gasp in here very quietly this morning when we heard that. But in our heart of hearts, we're thinking, wow, how could they be like that? But loved of God, I've got to tell you that regularly our hearts, while we might not say or ask the same question, we might be feeling that way. You know, there's a tendency for all of us that when things really pile up on us, when things are really rough, that, oh, we go to God and we're really praying and we're fasting and we're, we're coming before God, we're gathering in church and we really clean up our act and we're really working hard to, to, to put ourselves in the presence of God and make sure he knows we're around and he knows our plight and all of that. And then when things sort of level off and cool off, we sort of cool off with God. We maybe don't express the same question to him, but we're, our hearts... Sort of our, well, well, I'm glad that's over with. Now, God, I can get back, back to other things that are more a priority in my life, and you're not exactly it. So they ask this question of God in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 3, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Because after all, things are getting better or appear to be getting better. And as is so often the case when we go to... God with a question, he answers us with a question. Have you noticed that? I wanted an answer. And he gives us a question back. And that question usually probes really deeply into our heart. 
because the question that we've asked him has already revealed a problem in our heart and he cuts right through to the well, it cuts, as it said in the Bible, right through the bone, right, right through to the marrow, right to the very core of who you are and what's going on in your life. And he does that here with two questions, which we'll look at in a mo moment. When we um, bear a minimalist approach to the things of God, to our relationship with God, it may be laying bare a deeper heart issue. In fact, I'll take off the word maybe and say it is. So this whole situation, Zechariah 7, takes on a timeless kind of seriousness for us. Although we know the date was December 7, 518 B.C., not often is the text so precisely dated and we're not even really sure why it is so precisely dated but it's but but god only knows and there's a there's obviously a reason but but we can certainly zero in on this being key history and a key time and there's there's some historic things going on and some things going on in in the religious circles and in the political circles and here is the response that we face today so let's read the text and then we'll uh, make some commentary. In the fourth year of King Darius, where Zechariah 7, by the way, we're um, two books from the end of the Old Testament, right? In the fourth year of King Darius, so that's sort of, I, that's sort of um, zeroes in on some history. We know that now they're under the captivity of the Persians. The Israel's under the captivity of the Persians. They've moved from the Babylonians, or Bab Babylonians to now the Persians, and we know that they're like two leaders in because Cyrus was the first leader, and now we have King Darius. And it, it does focus us in on the time of Daniel. King Darius was leading in the time of Daniel, so most of us know Daniel better than we know Zechariah. So that sort of orientates you a little bit about where we are. So here we are in the fourth year of King Darius. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, which is a question, as I mentioned to you. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? I want to stop there for a second because in our busyness to do our religious thing, to come to church or whatever we're doing, praying or whatever we're doing, God is always asking the question, are you doing this for me or are you doing this for yourself? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words of the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem, its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? In other words, look around yourselves. Your borders have shrunk. Your blessings have dried up. We talked about this 80 years ago. I put this to you back then. I, I, 
I told you you needed to, to get your heart right a long time ago. And, and here we are in the same place, asking the same questions, looking at the same hearts. And your boundaries have shrunk and your blessings have dried up. Do you really think you should stop fasting? Do you really think you should back away from your commitment to me? Does that seem like a good idea to you? And the word of the Lord, verse 8, came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. And when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. This is the word of God for us this morning. Your fasts and your feasts, religious activities, like our gathering this morning, like our ceremony of the Lord's table that we're going to participate in shortly. That's what we're talking about. They may not be renewing your situation or the situation of your heart. Because in your living, you continue to put your relationship with one another and with the living God at risk. In other words, your ceremonial life is doing no good. It's not at least been helpful to your heart. We know that ceremony and ritual is just external Unless it is a reflection of what's going on deep inside of your heart and is reflected in how you are actually living, it's of no benefit to be part of ceremony and ritual. Maybe some of you haven't really um, heard much about fasting. We haven't talked a lot about it here, I don't think. But this is, has been a common discipline of God's people over these generations. The purpose of fasting, the word natsar, nasar, is to deny oneself. That's what fasting is about. It's to deny oneself. There are multiple levels of, of fasting, what it means. It, it's, to, it's for us to experience what it is to do without. It, it's to help us, our, our hearts to expand and to, to recognize what it is in some situations where people don't have things and where they don't have anything and and it's for us to start to feel deeply what it's like to be a someone who is um, vulnerable so fasting is to soften and expand your heart but it's also to to demonstrate to the lord a seriousness about our sin in our lives that we're taking our sin seriously and we're urgently calling out to the Lord. In fact, in, in counseling, I recommend to people, they come to me and they say, look, I'm battling so hard an addiction in my life and I know God wants it out of my life and I know it's sinful and I, I want it out of my life. 
what should I do? And one of the disciplines I always go to with them is you should be fasting. Because fasting teaches us to say no to the cravings of our physical desires. And addictions are just that. They grab hold of our, our physical desires and, and take them enemy and won't, won't, won't let them go. And fasting, the discipline of fasting can teach you how to say no to physical cravings so that you can say yes to God. Fasting is also just simply to tell God you take him seriously. Lord, I mean this desperately. My heart is desperate. They were fasting not for addictions. They were fasting for the idea that God would take them seriously. And now, of course, when they see that the temple is being rebuilt and captivity seems to be lessening, and they're in the 69th or 70th year of the prophecy, they're like, hey, you know what? We were taking you seriously before, and things have turned around, and so we can now go on with our lives. (laughs) Not. Not. The Lord asked them, has anything changed since the warning I gave you through the earlier prophets? I mean, have you really changed over this? This captivity, your religious rituals, your fasting, has this really changed your life? Or are you still the same? By the way, uh, although it was either around, was, was at the very end of the prophecy of their captivity and exile, at this very time, Daniel is dropping a prophetic bomb when he says to them in Daniel 9.24, forget about the idea of exile for 70 years. He says it'll be exile for 70 times 7 years. What? Yeah. Daniel's prophecy was that exile would be upon them until Messiah came and set their hearts free. That's the great prophecy of this. That true freedom would only be found in Messiah when Jesus came, the Savior. That's why when Jesus was among us, he said to uh, John the Baptist, well, John the Baptist's disciples, when Jesus had to take them to school, he said they were criticizing the fact that, that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And Jesus said to them, no, my disciples are not going to be fasting. They're not going to be fasting because the bridegroom is here. You feast when the bridegroom is here. You fast when he's not here. The bridegroom has come. The kingdom of God is near. That was the time of feasting, not fasting. That was what the fasting was all about, that the Messiah would come. But then Jesus was quick to say, but when the bridegroom leaves, you you better get back to fasting. And fast until he comes again. So God questions Israel's sincerity because of their behavior, not because of their rituals. The rituals were fine, but their behavior was not. Rituals and behavior must match or something's wrong. So here we go. I just want to make two quick points with you this morning from this text, and that's this, that religious rituals that grab God's attention do so When first, they affect the way you treat people. Religious rituals that grab God's attention. Our gathering here today grabs God's attention if it affects 
the way we treat people. In particular, God's people. Now look here. In verses 8, 9, and 10. This is a recap of what Jeremiah had warned them about about 80 years ago. It's the very same thing. If you look back at Jeremiah chapter 7, you will will happen upon the prophecy that he gave them. It sounds word for word what Zechariah is saying here. In verse 4 of Jeremiah 7, it says this, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, the people of that day were, were telling the prophet, Look, you don't need to talk to us about our our ethics and our morality and our behavior. We have the temple. Look at it with your own eyes. We have the symbol of God's presence. Their arrogance was, was oozing out of them. It doesn't matter how we live. We just have to take care of the ritual of the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's the symbol of our hearts. And Jeremiah says to them, what are you talking about? If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, and if you do not oppress the alien and the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting deceptive words that are worthless. You're saying, "Ah, look at us. We go to church. We go to church. We go to church. Look at us, we pray, we pray, we pray. Look at us, we go to the Lord's table, we go to the Lord's table, we go to the Lord's table. And God is saying, I want to see action in your life. I want to see a changed heart. I want to see how you relate to one another. That tells me whether what you're doing really means anything. So what are these things that need to change in our life or need to be visible in our life? There's four of them in these verses 9 and 10. I'll go over them very quickly. What, what are these ways that we are to treat people? The first is, it says, administer true justice. Administer true justice. That justice should be the same for everyone. Unbiased. Based on God's word. When you talk about true justice... You are talking about the judgment that is handed down by the supreme justice of the supreme court of the universe. You see, beloved, we, we already have the decision. We already have the judgment of the judge overall. When we're talking about justice in the word of God, we're talking about the righteous judge, the living God, the judge over all the earth, the one who we know will do right, that one, that judge. And that judge has handed down his judgment on life. This is his ruling that has been handed down to us. We refer to this when we are confronted with things in life to make the right judgment. We take out the book uh, from the judge and we ask ourselves, what has the judge ruled in this matter? And that's what we go by. That's what true justice looks like. And it's offered to all. That's why we talked about last week, we are those people who demonstrate or exhibit the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. 
They may not believe what we believe, but they know we believe what we believe. Because the judge has ruled. I, you and I are not the ones who are judging. We take the judgment that's already been handed to us and call forth the ruling that's already been ruled upon in the Supreme Court of the universe. See, we're not making up laws as we go along. We're not making up new things. The judge has already ruled. We appeal to that in our court systems. Once the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled on something, it sets precedent for everything else that comes along according to that case. And it's already been ruled on, and that's who we are. We already have the ruling for us. So we administer true justice to everyone. But in our justice, you see here, show mercy and compassion to one another. Because we don't have a, we, we're not serving a judge of all the universe who is absent mercy and compassion. Our God is not all justice and no mercy. Our God is not all mercy and no justice. Our God is justice and mercy, working in perfect balance. And that's how, that's how God's people are to exhibit His justice. The word chesed, another one of those great Hebrew words that you just let roll out of your throat. The chesed of God, the mercy of God. That's what we're talking about here. Loyalty to each other because of our great God. Tenderness toward each other because of our great God. We want to make sure we get good at the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. See? We're also to stop oppressing the vulnerable. Do not exploit the widows, the fatherless, orphans, the aliens, the poor. Do not exploit people who are vulnerable to opportunists. We as God's people are called to look after those people who are targets of opportunists. The kind that phone you up on the phone and tell you that Canada Revenue Agency has a claim against you for back taxes. And if you don't pay those taxes, you're going to jail. And the first time I got that phone call, I, I was like, I, I don't do the taxes. My wife does them. <laughs> so I have no idea if we're in trouble or not. So when I got that phone call, I was like, this is not going to look good on my resume. And then I found out by your groan that you're all getting those calls. And sadly, millions of dollars have left Canada because vulnerable people have been taken advantage of by opportunists. We're to be defenders of them. We're to be helpers of them. We're to make sure we tell them as quickly as we can, no, no, that call is not legitimate. We're to help each other. We're to look after each other but fourthly we're also to stop demonstrating a plot mentality toward our brothers look at this do in your hearts do not think evil of each other do not plot evil yes 
but do not fabricate plots of evil against you either. How important this is in the family of God. It's so easy for us to fantasize or, or, or come up with some sort of dream idea or, or have the idea that, oh, that person has something against me or they're, they're thinking that, I'm telling you, I can tell by the way that person looks at me. You know, I'm looking out here preaching and some of you are smiling, some of you are nodding, some of you are frowning. The frowning people obviously have something against me. Well, that's not true. I look at everybody with a frown. Not, you know, don't, don't, ever, don't ever, ever judge what I think of you by my face because it never tells the truth. I, I'm, like, I'm like leaping for joy in, inside and my face can be like... And you're like, hey, I don't think that guy likes me. No, I love you. I, I couldn't love you more. It's just I, I just don't have that one of those faces that, as Charles Swindoll says, I kind of have like a no face. Like a lot of people have a yes face, you know what I mean? Like there's lots of yes faces in here, but, but there are some no faces and I'm kind of one of those no faces. Don't, don't take that as a no. Take it as a yes, right? And, and so sometimes we draw conclusions about each other. In fact, we do this all the time. We look at each other or, or something, a phrase is said, uh, and we're like, pardon? And, and we just hear part of something. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you don't like me. You, in fact, you're planning, you're planning my demise. And it's like, no, no, we were planning the demise of the Leafs. It had nothing to do with you. It's like, <laughs> it's like it had nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with you. Don't worry about it. No, and, and so, and, and when that happens, when we think badly of each other, when we think evil of each other, when we think that there's a plot going on inside of us, we already have a preconceived idea of how we're going to approach each other, and it's not good. And, and here it is, it's all fabrication, there's no reality to it. And, and, and the living God says to us in the family of God, don't think like that. Don't give yourself any mind space on that kind of thing. You need to look at each other and think, I think they love me to death. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But you know what? Isn't it better? We're to live this way. But not only does our rituals and our ceremonies to deal with properly with each other, but it's also to deal properly with the living God. It affects the way we treat God as well. And how were they treating God? It says here, they refused, verse 11, to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs, stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint. Do you see the progression here? This is really desperate. This is how we often treat God. It says, you know, we hear something from God's word and it kind of triggers something. I don't like that. You know, I came too close, preacher. I'm not doing that. And so we stubbornly, we basically stubbornly, it says, turn our backs on that idea, which is visually, symbolically cursing God. Because when we, when we pray and ask God to bless us, we are literally asking God to turn full face toward us. That's what blessing really looks like. So when you're turning your back on God, you're taking the posture of cursing God. You're stubbornly saying no, and you're turning your back. You're stopping your ears going, la, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. Now, I don't want to hear what you're saying. And eventually our hearts, it says, grow as hard as flint, which means you can't hear him anymore at all. You can find yourself coming to church saying, you know what, I, I didn't hear anything. I didn't get anything out of that. I was like, that's dangerous, loved ones. That, that's a bad place to be in. When God's word is being taught, we should feel something. We should, 
learn something. We should change something. Something should be going on. We should rejoice about something. We should have tears about something. We should shout amen about something. We should praise God about something. We ought to lift our hands up once in a while while the preacher's preaching instead of when just Steve is leading worship. How come it's only about music that we get excited about Jesus? Should we not get excited about Jesus during the teaching of his word? I think so. Pastor Steve. I'll give you a hands up on the way out, man. You know, it's always this, you know, I kind of envy worship leaders a little bit. This is a little side. I kind of envy worship leaders a little bit because here's the thing for me. The day we walk into heaven together, I lose my job. I mean, like, seriously, right? Are you going to come and hear me or Jesus? I think we all know. I think I lose my job. But I don't think Pastor Steve is going to lose his job. Because I think the whole worship deal continues to happen in heaven. So worship guys are smart. They're smarter than preacher guys because, because they know that they got an eternity job thing going. And uh, so I just show me a little love now because I'm not getting any later. And I just, I just need it now. So there's this progression. But, but we're, if we are really, if a rituals and our ceremonies are really doing something in our life... They should, our, our stiff necks, it's, the, the picture here is like an animal that stiffens up, you know, and it, and it won't go in its yoke. You know, it's like a cat that won't go in its box to go to the veterinarian. You know what that, you ever try to put a cat in, the, in, a, in a box to go to the vet and they know it's going? Like, they're like, <laughs> you can't, you can't jam them in anything. And so that's what the picture here is like a stiff neck opposite, turning away from God. Stopped ears are supposed to be open to God. Flint-like hearts are supposed to be softened to God. If our gathering together does anything, this should be what's happening in our lives. Otherwise, and here's the desperate statement, otherwise, when you call on God, He will not listen to you. Like, that's a heavy-duty thing when you look at that. When I called on them... With my word, they got stubborn, turned their back, plugged their ears, and wouldn't listen, got hard hearts. He's just telling us, if you come to me, I'm not going to be listening to you. People often ask me, like, what, what would stop a prayer getting to God? This that we're talking about today. This is why... I am so committed to us as a church listening to God's word. Beloved, it's, it's to your health spiritually that I hold you to this. Because if we stop listening to God's word, he will stop listening to our prayers. Can we afford that? Can, can we afford to have... God stopped listening to us. And not only that, it says here, he was very angry. What makes God angry when you don't listen to his word? Loved of God, let me say this. I don't like having anybody angry at me. I don't like having the city angry at me. I don't like having the region angry at me. I don't like having the country angry at me. But more importantly, I don't want God angry at me. Because that's really the anger that matters. And so he says here, I'm angry when God's people are not listening to me. 
I don't want to be that. And not only that, he says, I will scatter them. He won't not only stop listening to our prayers, he will scatter us with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. And Israel to this day is still gathering people back from the scatter, from the diaspora, as we call it, because they wouldn't listen to God. See, he will, he will not just um, remove you from his hearing. He will fling you out of his presence. When you are flung out into judgment, then he will leave things desolate for you. His promises to you will dry up. So he says, go ahead and um, go to the temple and do your fasting and do your praying and do your ceremonies. But if your heart isn't changing because of it, and you're not listening to me, I'm going to quit listening to you. I'm going to fling you away from me. And I'm going to disqualify you from, from my promises. God's passion intersecting with his people's obedience always means blessing for the world. So if we want to make sure as a church we are accomplishing our purposes for which God has called us, which is to be a blessing to the nations, then we have to make sure our obedience to his word intersects with his passion for the world. And then, and only then, will the world be blessed. Our Father and our God, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us, for your truth, for your willingness to tell us the truth and hold us to the truth and love us in the truth. So, O oh God, we praise you today and thank you for your word to us. And I pray that it will penetrate deeply into our hearts and change the way we live, the way we act toward one another and the way we act toward you. Those two things attract your attention. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved of the Lord, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed his life to enable us to obey the living God so that we could choose life and not death. So beloved, choose life. Choose life. Father, we thank you so much today for this gathering, for this time to remember the greatest sacrifice of all, the one that the Lord Jesus Christ made by substituting himself as a sacrifice for our sins, the justice and mercy of God, offering to us free salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us into your family. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to continue to minister your truth to our city, to our community, to our region, that many people who are presently living in death would choose life, life everlasting. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Amen.